Welcome to our first Investor Podcast of 2020 and a Happy New Year to all our listeners. This is Gavin Ralston and with me today is Alex Tedder, Head of Global Equities. So we will be focusing on prospects for the equity markets in 2020. If we'd had this conversation on Friday of last week, we would have been celebrating the continuation of the 2019 bull market for equities. But things feel a bit different now after the assassination by the US of the Iranian General Soleimani. Having said that, the equity market response to Middle East turmoil has been surprisingly calm, despite the volume of scary press coverage. All the classic indicators of geopolitical risk have reacted as you would expect. The oil price and the gold price are both up, and 10-year government yields in the US are down about 10 basis points. But as, as we are speaking after three trading days of the new year, uh, the S&P 500 and most other equity markets are actually up since the start of 2020. But to go back to 2019, markets did end the year very strongly, with the MSCI world up another 3% in December, making it a 28% return for the year as a whole. Other risky assets, such as high-yield debt, followed suit. The principal factor behind the strength in December was, of course, the optimism on the US-China trade dispute. Over the year as a whole, value stocks um, underperformed significantly, but did manage to match the broader indices in December. Again, looking at the year as a whole, US stocks outperformed the rest of the world by about 10% and outperformed emerging markets by a slightly wider margin. Although one feature of the last month of the year was that emerging markets rose strongly with a 7% rise led mainly by China. But Alex, let's start with the very short term. Uh, Talk us through how the equity markets have reacted to the Middle Eastern developments I referenced. Well, it's interesting, Gavin, that um, the market reaction has been so benign because political risks and geopolitical risks generally seem to be extremely elevated at the moment, probably more elevated than they have been for a very long time. And I don't think that's going away. And I think in that respect, this year will be quite different to a lot of late cycle market years. Normally, this late in the cycle, we'd expect normal natural market correction to take place, driven by a downturn in profitability or a weaker economy. Right now, I don't necessarily see that, and we'll come on to that. But what I do see is extremely elevated geopolitical risks. And for now, the market's prepared to overlook that, but they may not going forward. And and why do you think the short-term reaction has been so benign? I think currently uh, investors uh, are feeling that this um, situation in the Middle East is somewhat contained, um, that it won't escalate further, and that generally other geopolitical factors, such as you mentioned the China trade agreement, are, are trending in the right direction. And therefore, for now, investors are giving markets the benefit of the doubt. But that can change quite quickly, as we know. So let's look a bit further out. We had two very different years for equities in 2018 and 2019. Mm. 2018, a very negative year, especially towards the end of the year. 2019, one of the best in the last 10 years. Yes. Uh, what does 2020 look like? Uh, if I had a crystal ball. Um, but I will say I think it will be neither 2018 nor 2019 over again. Uh, you're right. 2018 was a year characterized by weakness in markets across the globe and a lot of uncertainty. 2019, still a lot of uncertainty, but a lot of optimism as well, particularly uh, around some sectors and some areas of the market. I think in 2020, 
market returns will be lower, certainly from the US. I expect returns to be in the mid-single-digit range overall. Uh, I think returns outside the US can be considerably stronger than that, particularly in emerging markets, uh, driven by the earnings delta, and we'll come on to that. And you used the phrase late cycle in, in talking about where we are at the moment. Mm. In a classic late cycle environment, you'd be expecting to see signs of inflation and central banks beginning to offset concerns about inflation. If you judge from Keith's forecasts, none of that is expected. In fact, Keith's still looking at one further cut in Fed rates this year. Mm. Doesn't that mean that it, it's perhaps misplaced to look at this as being a late cycle year? Great question. Uh, as I said, I don't think this is going to be a typical uh, end to the cycle in any respect, because, as you say, the, the normal pressures that you would experience at this stage um, in the cycle are simply not there. Uh, and therefore, I think the conditions for markets are very different to uh, comparable periods in the recent past. Markets can still do quite well, I think. Um, and uh, as you say, big factors like inflation are very much under control. So the traditional uh, pressures that we would have seen at this point are not there. And obviously the key last year, earnings growth was slightly negative for the US mm. uh, corporate sector. And the key to strong market returns was the provision of liquidity. Mm. Uh, we'll come on to earnings growth in a moment, but isn't it quite likely that we continue to get that very positive influence from central banks providing liquidity? It is. Um, you know, leading off really from the last question, that stimulus is still there. Uh, it is gradually coming to end, but only to an end, but only very gradually. Um, and uh, I think that's still highly supportive for markets and for valuations. Uh, I think the, the key question is this. You take a step back and look at how well markets have done over the longer term. The United States in the last 10 years has delivered a total return of 260%, uh, which is an extraordinary return by any measure. Uh, the rest of the world has been much less strong. Um, uh, developed markets outside the US have, de have delivered an 80% total return and emerging markets has delivered a 48% total return over the same time period. Now, I'm not saying the US is suddenly going to underperform, but in terms of where we are, the US is definitely a lot more, a lot further down the curve than the rest of the world. And that applies particularly to profitability and to earnings. So I think it's right that we think about the next phase of markets. And the next phase, I think, will be less US and more rest of the world. And the, the consensus forecast for earnings growth in the US this year is roughly plus 10 or 11%. Yes. Um, I think you were saying earlier that that's, that's too high, but mm. earnings expectations for last year were also too high and came down progressively as mm. the year unfolded. They did. Uh, will earnings growth matter more this year? Uh, I think it will, because I think the expectations are now elevated Valuations, as you point out, are, are high, particularly in the US. They're well above their longer-term average. Uh, the market is still expecting 10% earnings growth year-on-year year in 2020, and it's also expecting 11% earnings growth in 2021 in the US. Uh, 
I think that both those numbers are a stretch. Even allowing for the fact that the energy sector, parts of the industrial space, and indeed the tech sector will deliver good earnings growth uh, this year, I think 10% for the market as a whole in the US is going to be a stretch. Whereas in other markets, expectations look more reasonable, better underpinned, uh, and the base effect obviously is much lower. And valuations are also more attractive. If you just look at price earnings ratios, the US is on about 18 times earnings, which is roughly 15% above its long-term average. But Europe is on 14 times and emerging markets on 12 times. So that presumably leaves some room for non-US markets to catch up just from a, an adjustment of valuations. Do you know, I think it, I think it does, Gavin. Um, I mean, one thing I want to make clear is I don't expect the US to derate massively versus the rest of the world. So, you know, a lot of people are saying the US is too expensive and other markets will catch up and valuations will equalize. I don't see that. I think there are structural reasons why the US will continue to trade at a premium to the rest of the world. But looking at those numbers that you just quoted and looking at earnings expectations for the rest of the world, I think there's much more scope for positive surprise outside the US, particularly in emerging markets, than in the US. And in areas, um, uh, in emerging markets in particular, you have, I think, what is potentially a happy combination of stabilizing to improving growth, plenty of scope for interest rate cuts, certainly in some markets, some emerging markets, and companies that actually are well positioned and in many cases growing quite rapidly and will experience positive operating leverage in 2020 and 2021. So I think. The outlook as we see it, and this is reflected in our pipeline actually of research right now, is that we're starting to see a lot more ideas in emerging, even in Europe and even in Japan, uh, than we have done for some time, and fewer ideas in the United States. So, so perhaps you can give us some examples of ideas either that you own in global portfolios in emerging markets or those that you're looking at in the research pipeline. Well, I think you know one, one of the um, one of the interesting facts for us is that um, if we look at, for example, the high growth area of emerging markets, in other words, companies that, um, by dint of their business model and their positioning, are, are generating strong revenue growth rates and, uh, in many cases, strong ca cash flow growth. A lot of these companies actually trade at a material discount to their U.S. peers. So right there, if we look at, for example, Chinese internet um, and Chinese re uh, retail, uh, online retail, uh, these companies trade at a material discount, discount to their U.S. peers and underperform them quite substantially in uh, 2019. I think there's no reason why those companies shouldn't trade at an equivalent level to their U.S. peers. So that's one group. Mm -hmm. uh, Alibaba, Tencent, those type of companies, I think, are very attractive in this environment. And then the second group is really uh, the more sort of uh, traditional group where uh, we see a lot of uh, potential for operating leverage to surprise in the upside, be that in Latin America, in India, uh, in China, um, where estimates are not that aggressive, uh, where the potential for cash flow growth is really very strong. If you take, for example, a Larson and Tubro in India, it's a um, ENC contracting company, 
uh, in a market where we expect very strong infrastructure growth and project growth going forward. A company that has repositioned, has a much better control of costs, and has a better contract structure than it used to have. I think Larson & Tubro could perform very strongly over the next two years, and that's certainly not reflected in the multiple today. And, and Europe in general, uh, Europe's growing at about 1% mm. this year. Inflation's maybe 1%. Mm. W where is earnings growth coming from? Well, Europe, uh, good old Europe. Uh, it's always the dilemma uh, with Europe that uh, the structure of the market is relatively unattractive. So I just want to make that clear is that on a global context, Europe remains from a sort of structural stamp standpoint, not that interesting. And just by highlighting some of the key sectors, mm -hmm. you can see that very clearly. IT in the S&P is nearly 25% now. It's 15% of emerging markets. It's 5% of Europe and Japan. Uh, our financials are 13% of the S&P, but 20% of Europe and Japan. Um, industrials are 8% of the S&P, but 14% of Europe and Japan. So really, when you think about Europe and, and Japan uh, in a very similar vein, uh, what you need to see is industrial earnings uh, inflect. You need to see stabilization and improvement in the economies, obviously. You need to see revenue growth and you need to see operating leverage. And I think... We will gradually see that during the course of the year as end markets like China start to recover. Uh, Europe is, and Japan are particularly exposed to that from an, an industrial standpoint. But it's going to be a gradual process. So my point is slightly this. Uh, I think Europe can do quite well, possibly better than the US uh, this year, given the low starting point. But structurally, uh, Europe remains a challenge market on a global basis. Let's talk a bit more about sectors this year. Mm. In 2019, there was a big divergence between quality sectors as defined by the indices, particularly the tech stocks in the US. Apple in particular was a standout performer. Mm. Does that continue this year? I know you talked about attractive valuations for tech companies outside the US, but looking at the tech sector globally, yeah. does it outperform again? Yeah, big, big, big question. Um, and I don't yet have a clear answer on that. Um, here's the issue. Uh, fundamentally, these businesses are in, still in great shape. Um, the operating performance of Apple, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon remains extremely good. And I really don't see any signs short term of that changing. Um, and indeed, in some cases, it's arguably accelerating. Uh, and valuations are not egregious. So in that group, none of those stocks are particularly egregiously valued. Even Amazon, for us, does not look particularly expensive on an underlying basis. So <clears throat> can tech do well? Yes, I think, I think it can. And uh, Unlike many other sectors, of course, tech has the advantage of being less influenced by the macroeconomic picture and by the political picture, at least at the geopolitical level. Where things start to get more difficult is obviously in terms of regulation. And I've talked about it before. 
It is the wild card. If there are two things that I worry about most at the moment, one is obviously geopolitics, and two is regulation. And if we have a Democrat victory in the elections in the United States this year, that will not be good for the tech sector, particularly for big tech, and it will not be good for the healthcare sector for obvious reasons. Well, that no doubt will be a theme of conversations like this as the year yeah, it will be. progresses. It will be. You, you talked in your the 2020 outlook that you released in December about the importance of thematic investing. Mm. Uh, how, how does that play out in terms of relative performance in the next year or so? Yeah, I'm glad you raised that, Gavin. It is something we believe very strongly in, we feel very strongly about. And we've made the point many times in the last 12 months that precisely because equity markets have done so well, uh, perhaps now is a good time to step back from the index, from traditional indices, from market cap weighted indices, and think about where one might be able to add value and achieve positive incremental return going forward. And some of the big structural drivers that we have highlighted um, in that respect that we think are very relevant today. Climate change is a fact. We've seen it reiterated yet again in Australia in recent weeks. Uh, we've seen it all over the world in recent months. And it is a, an incredibly powerful driver that we think will present many challenges, but also many opportunities for investors who are prepared to think about the theme and invest, hopefully with us, uh, alongside the theme. So. I think allocating a proportion of assets away from traditional indices to themes, structural themes, such as climate change, such as sustainability, energy transition, technology disruption, and healthcare, are, is probably going to be a very good way to achieve not only good absolute returns, over the next two, three years, but also good relative returns. Just one last question really on, on market volatility. We haven't seen much market volatility. Um, the VIX has been pretty close to where it was in 2017 for most of the last six months. Do you mm. think this is going to be a more volatile year? I do. I think the, the VIX, is, as you point out, has been remarkably benign. And that has to change, and it will change. I think we all agree that the current interest rate structure, uh, driven by this great monetary experiment that we're in, is unsustainable. And, and it is. I don't know how it will unwind, but it will. Geopolitics may be the factor there, and obviously a war in the Middle East would be a major disruptor mm. to the yield curve and many other mar uh, market asset classes as well. Um, so I think that aspect, that support, will no longer uh, be there potentially, or at least concern around it will it will start to rise, and that will create more volatility. In addition, we've talked about the earnings outlook, the difficulty in certainly some countries, some markets like the U.S., in achieving further uh, margin and revenue surprise uh, will create volatility, certainly at the stock level going forward. Um, and then there's you know the wild cards that we you know we always have, uh, uh, such as politics in other countries. Um, regulation that we've discussed, um, 
and, and other factors that, that may influence volatility. I just think I, I think it's been incredibly benign for a long time. I think it will, it will come to an end in 2020. We, we will experience some quite material drawdowns during the course of the year. Okay, thank you, Alex. Um, let's end on that note. Uh, just to pick up some of the points that you'd made. Uh, the first was that you are looking at potentially single-digit returns from the US in 2020, but pos the possibility of higher returns than that in both Europe and emerging markets, which you drew attention to as looking particularly attractive. Uh, you highlighted a number of the individual companies where you can buy the same level of earnings growth outside the US on significantly lower multiples. You also talked about the impact possibly later in the year of stronger growth in China, dragging up growth in Europe and in Japan. And then finally, highlighting the twin risks to markets of geopolitics, which we're seeing playing out at the moment, and then probably later in the year, regulation. So thank you again, Alex. Uh, we wish you all the best with your stock picking this year. And thank you all for listening.